Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A tourist asked the gardener at England's Eton College about how they keep their lawns so perfect. That's easy, he said. You just brush off the dew every morning, mow them every other day, and roll them once a week. Is that all the tourist responded? The answer? Absolutely. Do that for 500 years and you'll have a nice lawn too. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Rooted, a lifestyle of radical dependence with this sermon entitled Rooted in Self-Denial and Sacrifice, which covers Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. This is a special day, and it's a special topic as we continue in this series of being rooted, uh, rooted in what is it that, that we need to be about as followers of Jesus uh, in order to flourish. And I'll talk even more a little bit here about what do we mean by that. But it's a special topic to coincide with uh, just even remembering and celebrating all that God has done through Randy and Carol, because we're talking about this morning uh, rooted in self-denial and sacrifice and what examples they have been of this very thing, of self-denial and sacrifice for the sake of the flourishing of the kingdom of God. Uh, I can think of no better topic, no better subject to, to broach on a day like today when we are honoring them. So um, let me pray for us, and then I'll jump in quickly to where Lord, the Lord is leading us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to gather together. Thank you that we get to open your word. And thank you. Thank you that you have called us to a life found in you. And all that comes with that, Lord, teach us well in these minutes we have together. Let your spirit move. May your word do its work in us and among us. We thank you and we give you praise. Would you do it for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I like... A pristine lawn, a perfect yard, gloriously green, edged well, no weeds. Not necessarily talking about my yard. I'm just saying that's what I like. That's what I long for. Um, But one of the reasons that in my years of home ownership that I haven't had that kind of yard necessarily It's because to have a yard that is pristine, that is beautiful, that is flourishing, is really hard work. It's a daily battle. Because all the things that you don't want to grow naturally grow in the soil of your lawn when you don't do anything. It's like, man, why will grass not grow the way all those weeds do? If I don't water, they still grow. If we're in a drought, they still grow. But the grass won't. You have to compete like crazy. You have to fight like crazy every day to pick weeds, to spray, to whatever, to get your lawn to flourish the way that you would long to. And that's such a metaphor. When I'm doing yard work, I think about what a metaphor that is for the daily Christian life. How what happens in the soil of my heart is that the things that I don't want to grow naturally grow when I don't do anything. 
They just come to the surface, they sprout, they grow, and left unattended, uh, they take deep root in my heart. And it's a fight every single day to kill those things and to water, if you will, to give nourishment to the things that aren't of sin, but of the Spirit. I've talked about this often already, but I, don't, I just want to mention it again, because if you don't understand this, you will miss the essence of what we're in a daily battle against. When, when we are born, every single one of us, we are born into sin, according to the scriptures. We are born with what I have often called the Adamic residue, the residue of Adam, to where what we are born into is this nature, this sinful nature, that where everything that is natural to us are the things that will eventually kill us, the things that do kill us, the things that actually strip away what will give us life. They promise life. They say that they will give us what we so long for, but they never give us what we need. But yet it's our nature to run to those things over and over and over again. We are by nature self-righteous people, just selfish in every way, self-condemning. We are egotistical, prideful, arrogant. We are judgmental, anger, lustful, things that are the weeds of the soil of our hearts from our sinful nature. They just grow. But if you're in Christ, if you have tasted of his grace, if you've experienced him as your rescuer and your deliverer from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin, then what you know to be true is that upon belief in Christ, you have been given a second nature, the nature of the spirit of God himself. And that nature wars against your old nature to begin to desire new things that glorify him, life according to the way that he designed it to be, uh, rerooting, if you will, the soil of your heart. Now, the thing about this is that we could simply say it like this. We could say what I'm in a daily battle against is myself. I'm daily fighting against me, against my old nature. John Calvin, the great church reformer, said this. He said, the essence, the sum of Christian life is self-denial. This is what Jesus called us to in, in a culture that existed then, that ex exists even uh, possibly even more prevalently now, in a culture that says, do whatever you want to do, be whatever you want to do, uh, be, uh, do with yourself whatever you want to do. That's what the culture and the world around us screams at us. But the nature of the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom of God, straight from the lips of Jesus is no, deny yourself. Embrace a lifestyle of sacrifice and suffering. And follow me. Everything about the kingdom of God that Jesus is calling us to is countercultural to everything that's within us and everything that's around us. And it's a daily battle. One author, a guy named Michael Green, says it this way. He says, followers of Jesus must not forget that there is inevitably a lifelong battle to fight. They are called to follow their master in suffering, but are promised to share in his triumph. That note of spiritual struggle is often absent from the contemporary church, but it is a mark of authentic Christianity. So let's go to Mark 8. Mark chapter 8, I want to take you to a familiar passage. If you've been in or around church for any length of time, you're going to recognize this. This is some of the more famous words that Jesus 
ever spoken that we have recorded for us, starting in chapter 8, verse 31, says this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Don't miss that. He said this so clearly, yet they still didn't get it. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life or his soul? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. I want to give you three things to take away with you this morning. Here's the first one. Three things that we see in the text. First one, we need to be a people who fight against and, uh, against worldly and even Christian subcultural confusion. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you look in the text, Peter and all of the Jews with him were confused. They were confused about the nature of the kingdom of God when it would show up. And they were confused about the mission of the king. They had misinterpreted and misunderstood uh, the prophetic scripture from the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Deliverer, the Savior. And this is Jesus when he does show up on the scene. What they are expecting is they have read the Old Testament scriptures and have only understood them to be as one coming of the Messiah. They didn't understand that there were two comings. And they, what they were looking for is they were looking for militaristic rescue, deliverance, political government deliverance to give them back their earthly kingdom that they had had under uh, David and Solomon when it was in all of its glory. And that's what they so longed for again. And that had been almost a half a millennium since they had had that. And so they thought that their biggest problem that the Messiah was coming to deliver them from was the Romans. Those who were in oppression over them, those who were, who were in, in power over them. And so they thought this is what, when he comes, this is what he will deliver from. And so when Jesus says, you can understand why Peter would rebuke him, because when Jesus says, uh, I got to die and then be raised on the third day, Peter, all they hear is you're going to die. Wait, hold on. Aren't we going into Rome and taking over? Like, what do you mean you got to die? And they didn't understand. They were confused about the nature of the kingdom of God. Because here's what the human heart will naturally do is we will construct and misconstrue anything that we can to ultimately center it on what we most want. And what we most want is almost always centered on our personal comfort and ease. That's what we chase after. That's what we long for. And they were confused then, but don't miss it. We are a people who are so easily confused now about the very same things, the nature of the kingdom of God and the mission of the king. We are a people who 
still operate in our old nature left unto ourselves when the weeds of selfishness and comfort and ease begin to take root within us and we don't root them out and we don't live in self-denial and sacrifice, what we will ultimately do is we will take the message of the Messiah, Jesus himself, and make it about our comfort and our ease. We will say this is ultimately about me. So we, we fight inwardly with this confusion. We also fight the world around us, the message of the world around us. The message of the world around us that markets to us almost in every way is to say, you need this that I'm offering you because it will make your life easier. It will make you more comfortable. And we hear that message and we flock to it because that's what we most want. But we also fight the confusion that has taken root even in the subcultural avenues, if you will, of the church. There's so many pockets of Christianity that exist today, primarily in Western Christianity, because there's the places that where this is most rooted is in the places where there's most wealth. And it's a message that is not biblical and it is not a gospel at all, but it is a fake gospel that says that if you believe upon Jesus, you will get what you most want, which is your comfort and your ease. And Jesus says something very different than that. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. And follow me. Michael Green, the guy I quoted earlier, simply says this. He says, to follow Jesus meant conflict with ease and with comfort. We have to fight against the confusion of what is the nature of the kingdom and the mission of the king. The second thing is we have to be a people who embrace and expect the suffering that accompanies following the Messiah. There's suffering that comes when we follow the suffering servant. He has invited us into his kingdom rule and reign, which means that, yes, there is a day coming. There is a day coming with unthinkable glory for the follower of Jesus. But in this reality that we're in now, this in-between, if you will, the kingdom has come, but not yet fully. We are in the already, but the not yet and in this manifestation of the kingdom, we are called to a life of self-denial and of sacrifice that you could all put under the umbrella of suffering. And you go, wow, am I cut out for that? John Stott, one of my favorite authors, he says it this way. All too many people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become a little bit involved, enough to be respectable, respectable but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is, is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder cynics complain of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Tell us how you really feel, John. <laughs> Everything that Jesus is calling us to embrace as a part of following him as our king is both counterpersonal 
to what we most naturally desire within our natural selves. And it's also countercultural. It's a call to die. It's a call to die to ourselves, to die, to die to what we think life is most about and to die to putting me at the center of it. To deny self, to take up our cross and to follow him. Lastly, the seemingly paradoxical nature of Christianity leads to flourishing of life and soul. He says that in losing our lives, we find them. Now, if I didn't give you this third point, not me, if Jesus didn't take it to this place, then we would just simply think, good grief. Why would I ever want to follow this guy? This sounds miserable. But what seems kind of paradoxical to us that you would say that in losing my life, I find it. The reason that is, is because this, we actually begin to embrace a life that is centered on the very thing, namely Jesus, that we were made for. And so when our life begins to get more and more aligned to who he is in his presence and his supremacy in our hearts, the more and more we actually begin to flourish now, it may not be in the ways that we had intended. It may not be circumstantially, but we actually begin to experience the fullness and the flourishing of the heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And whether our circumstances uh, coordinate with that or not, it doesn't really matter because aside from our circumstances, we are experiencing life inwardly and through that into the circumstances around us, a flourishing that can only come from God himself inside of us. And the more we lose our lives according to our standard, the more we actually experience life according to his. He says here, a verse that you may have heard before. He says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but yet forfeited or lost his own soul or his own life, meaning eternally? God is, God is calling us this morning through this text to begin to identify and die to the ways in which we are trying to gain the whole world and in so doing, forfeiting our souls. When I was six years old, I don't remember this very well, but my dad has told a story to me so many times uh, that I feel like I remember it. But in the 1980s, Trivial Pursuit was huge. Some of y'all remember that. Some of you don't know what Trivial Pursuit is. That's okay. So with that, somebody developed a game that was set up the same way as Trivial Pursuit, but it was Bible Trivial Pursuit. I don't know if you remember this, but my family and I would play it occasionally. We would gather around and just like a movie scene, we're playing Bible trivia. And the way the game was set up is you could draw cards or pie pieces. I don't remember exactly how it all worked, but one of the cards that you would get would be finish this verse and there was one time we were playing this and I got this verse and it said, uh, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeited his own blank? And my dad has told the story many times over and over and over again. He even one time submitted it to Reader's Digest. <laughs> Gen Z Reader's Digest is, um, it's, it's this magazine that, um, Used to be really popular. Also, Gen Z magazines are these things that um, <laughs> you open and flip through. And anyway, um, you guys are so much cooler than Reader's Digest, and I mean that. 
but he's told this story so many times. Apparently what I did is I labored. I wanted to get the answer right. And I labored. And he said it was at least a minute, maybe two minutes of me just sitting there thinking and pondering. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his? Oh, what's the right answer? And finally, after laboring over it, I said, okay, I've got it. What would it profit a man if he lost, uh, if he gained the whole world and lost his own woman? And my mom and dad said they just lost it laughing hysterically. And then my dad actually said, that's not necessarily a wrong answer there, buddy. I mean, it's not the right answer, but I understand what you're saying. And so it's a great, it's a great memory for me to remember, okay, this is, but that's what we do. What is it that you fill the blank in with? What is it that when you ponder and you think, okay, if I'm going to be brutally honest, with myself, what fills the blank? Because whatever does fill the blank tells you what it is that we most long for to give us life that only Jesus can give. What fills the blank? Is it, uh, what would a prophet of man or a woman if you gain the whole world and lose your own spouse, lose your own children, lose your own family, lose your own job, lose your own health, lose your own wealth, your reputation, your identity, whatever it may be, the things that we most long for are the things that will not give us what only self-denial and sacrifice of all those things, all good that they may be, Jesus is the only one that gives us what our hearts were made to receive from the maker himself. But let me be abundantly clear about something. This is not a message about glorifying self-denial and sacrifice. Plenty of religions do that. Plenty of religions make a big deal about self-denial and sacrifice because the more you embrace a life of self-denial and sacrifice, the better you actually end up feeling about yourself, even to a point where you land in the bedrock of self-righteousness to where you think you are better than others and you, you puff yourself up, but it's with all the wrong things. So it's not about this discipline of self-denial and sacrifice. It's about getting a bigger vision for our lives that causes us to be joyful about self-denial and sacrifice. And the bigger vision of our lives is a beautiful gazing upon Jesus, that he's worth it that he's the one for whom my soul most longs. Matthew 13, 44 says this. It tells a story, this quick little story that Jesus says, uh, so profound. There's a man that was in a field and he stumbles upon a treasure and the treasure was, was so beautiful and of such great worth that upon finding it in his joy, the most three important words in that, in that verse in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy the field so that he can possess the treasure. Do you know what the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is? It's not you and me. It's Jesus. He's the treasure. And when we discover him, so to speak, when our eyes begin to be open to his beauty, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one whom life is in. We actually get such a big vision for our life centered on him and his supremacy and his glory and his reign that we will begin to then at that point grow in the ability to joyfully let go of all these other things so that we can have more of him. It's not self-denial and sacrifice for the sake of self-denial and sacrifice. It's self-denial and sacrifice for the sake of more of Jesus. 
to be satisfied in him and all that he is for us. So what do we do? We do what the scriptures call us to do in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith for the joy set before him. He knows this joy thing too. He knows this sacrifice thing too. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the father. He's alive, giving us through his spirit within us the same ability to embrace a life of sacrifice and in our joy, look to him and find life according to the way that he has designed it to be, not according to the way that I want it. So father, would you do that with us? Would you make us a people who because our vision of Jesus is growing more and more and our experience of him satisfying the depths of our souls, we are a people who grow in our ability more and more and more to die to the things of this world, to die to the things of our old nature, to embrace more of Jesus in our lives. Give us your power to be able to live that out, to be a radically dependent people And would you do it all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.